When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So we had someone uh, on our team. We have a community post on oh. YouTube, and this this we can go on the philosophical ramifications of this. We have there's a community tab on YouTube. Uh, I don't watch it at all. We also have an Instagram that I don't watch at all. And somebody on our team posted a meme of Kevin Hart saying, "Can a woman make you rich, a billionaire, or a millionaire?" I'm gonna fuck this up. Can a woman make you a millionaire? And then the second part of it is yes, if you're already a billionaire, implying that. The way that, you know, women divorce you and take take your money. Uh, didn't know this was going up. Goes up. And I only found out about it because I have, uh, I very rarely check my core email just because we get so many emails. But yeah. whenever there's something like uh, pointed negatively at me, it sometimes catches my eye. <laughs> How do you <laughs> yeah. even go into the inbox? Every, I, I go into the inbox every now and then to check um, split tests for our TubeBuddy thing because it tells me uh, when they're updated and I'll just click that link. And okay. I don't click the other emails. Got it. So something brings you into that, yeah, yeah. that mess. And so I click, I click deeply disappointed in you. I'm like, oh, this should be good. <laughs> You're like, oh God, what did Ben put in the last video? <laughs> and I click and it's this and I, don't, and, I, and I don't know exactly what it's referring to when I go to the community post and I see this. And this is at night. And... It, a number of thoughts that were just interesting to me. One is I, I experience, uh, to a greater degree, I think what we all experience, which is that we exist in other people's minds, uh, not as we are, <laughs> right? And, and the attempt to manage what other people think of us is such a doomed enterprise. Mm. And, and part of being having the, the smallest amount of fame possible is that you just you just get experiences like this over and over again. You're like, what am I supposed to do <laughs> with this? Uh, I had, well, you're in a weird spot. Cause it's like one, you're not as angelic and wonderful oh, as no. a super fan might think you are. Yeah. And then two, you had nothing to do with this post. And oh. so like, I had this, I had this image of you that was amazing. You're like, well, I don't deserve that. Yeah. But now I hate you because of this post. You're like, well, I don't deserve that. So yes. here yes. we are. And so I'm going through it and I'm, and then I'm thinking of uh, like late at night, the philosophy of communication. Cause I look at this post and I go, so really like who cares this is to to be upset about a community post with this is from my personal charlie hooper perspective silly uh this is not something that i would walk into a room full of strangers and shout because why mm -hmm. <laughs> but it's also not a joke that i would find unfunny um in the right context and the right delivery i could be like this is this is funny i have i have no problem with this it is off brand though in the sense that like well, it, charisma on command is not you charisma on command this is, is what i was like wrapping my head around well yeah it's a it's a pc gender neutral <laughs> place where anyone can come and learn charisma and so mm -hmm. i think the team 
who does this, I told them like, just because you think it's funny, whoever you are that's in on the team doesn't mean you can post it because that's not what this is. Like, this is not meant to be, this is what people come here for. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's kind of like if I was just playing League of Legends and then all of a sudden it was just popping up with a bunch of random jokes. It's like, well, yeah. that's not, <laughs> I'm not here for that. I'm here to yeah, yeah. play League of Legends. So that was my only thing. It's like, yeah, you guys can send these jokes around yourselves via text message, but just don't post them because it's not on brand. Yeah, I ultimately agree, but I was sitting there thinking, I was like, we have, there's there's not a lot we could do, but this is just happens in today's worlds. We don't have like a spot in our brain for brand. Like, entity that exists independent of human of humans that is just an amalgamation of incentives and different people that are moving in and out of an organization doesn't exist in the human hardwiring and so what often happens especially at the smaller level is that a face becomes associated with a brand so even like amazon will do something at a policy level and people will think that it necessarily reflects upon jeff bezos human i actually disagree i think for a lot of brands we don't even know the founder like if nalgene did something sure. crazy we, you would just go oh, that's nalgene yeah. i actually think that this stems from the fact that we didn't have a team it's just yes. two guys and so everything that happened that anything charisma command did for a period of time you or i had done or approved of and then we grew and built a team and i don't think people think that i think they might still think you record all the videos and then edit the video yourself. Sure. Like even if an inappropriate B-roll came in there, I don't think they would necessarily go, oh, the editor did that. They would think, oh, the editor, or they would think the editor did that and then Charlie or Ben reviewed it, which we don't. We have yes. someone on the team review it. So I don't, I think there's just, it's because we started small and were responsible for everything. Because if mm-hmm. we had started Faceless the whole time, I think perhaps you wouldn't I totally have agree. that issue. I totally like agree. I do think that there is a tendency that is like, yes, if you are a brand that uh, doesn't have a, f- a human face Just at all, product. but even even take Geico or something that like, I think brands tend to recognize or Nike that like will associate themselves with athletes and then it mm-hmm. will reflect upon that athlete the stuff that Nike yep. does. Geico had a racist policy. We would all blame the gecko. We blame the gecko. Yeah, on. <laughs> completely agree. <laughs> uh, there is a, I think, an inborn tendency when the, to, to just not totally grasp what an organization is mm-hmm. um and so if there is an opportunity to attach it even given the fact that i haven't been seen or heard on the channel in six months well people don't know the difference between our voices well sure <laughs> that's another thing <laughs> that's so that's that was just one thing is that a man like what is this brand and also like is a brand necessarily a lie because it's it's so it's not from from our perspective this is what i was wrestling with because i'm going okay i didn't post this some people in the world think that I post this. Do I now step in and delete this? I don't have a problem with the post. I wouldn't have okayed it because it just doesn't fit. It's like, it does feel like walking into a room and shouting. Oh yeah, <laughs> I just shouting think, that joke. I just like, think it's just a, kind of a, it's just a bad strange call. thing to do and yeah, not worthwhile. Uh, the other thing that we've talked about this before, a little tangential, this is even true with individuals. Mm-hmm. Bernie Sanders tweets something and people get upset. Mm-hmm. I don't think, Bernie Sanders is sending his own tweets. I don't think he's even signing off on his own tweets. I think he's reading legislation while a social media team does that. And so then if they say something inappropriate and it says it's from Bernie Sanders, I think you still can't get mad at Bernie Sanders because all he did was hire the person. Mm -hmm. But I don't think he's reviewing the tweets. He probably hired the person who hired the person. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So we're reaching this weird age where even people's actual identities 
their social media presence is not them. Like if you see a celebrity responding in the comments, it's not them. Mm-hmm. It's just some intern that they hired. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I was just thinking through the philosophy of communication. I was like, okay, if this were me and I had said this and I had chosen to say this and somebody was deeply upset in this step, in if I had felt like this was the right place to say it, I actually, I am, I am hesitant that just the type of person I am to apologize because someone is offended. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I like, I can apologize and it, that people often find this half-hearted, but this is how I feel like I can apologize that someone is offended, but I'm not good at being like, I regret saying that mm-hmm. because I want to be honest to my sense of, I don't want to betray my past self in that way. Like I, yes, I, I don't want you to be sad or upset, but also I have to be frank and truthful about the things that I think are right and wrong to say and, and, well, personally, I, I hope that I would have elected uh, a good course of action if we were all in a room interacting with one another. But that's not the case. Like, one, there's no room. Two, I didn't say this. <laughs> like, three. I think that's a habit a lot of people have to break. Yeah. Especially people who think that they're walked over or pushed over. Or they feel like they don't get respect. They I think, need to do I think what a, I do or they need I think to, a bad habit, I need to change. I know. I think a bad habit is to apologize when you don't, when you're not sorry. That someone just tells you you're wrong. You don't think you did anything wrong, but you apologize. You just defer to their conviction. I think if you make that a habit, it can lead to low self-esteem or being walked over and taken advantage of. And I think that's uh, a mistake that people make. It's just to go, okay, I'm not actually sorry, but I will defer to your reality and apologize. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's wrong that other people do it, but that is how I feel personally. And and then I was thinking about- Oh, I used to do it. Yeah. I unlearned it purposefully because yeah. I do think it's- harmful i my sense of it as like what is my and then i was like what is my philosophy of saying sorry and for me i can only apologize for an act when i actually think that it was wrong by my own moral standard and not by um it having created an outcome that was unfavorable and i intend to do differently and in those occasions in the future and in those occasions sorry say it's what was the first part uh, when by my own standards, not just because of the reaction of people around me, like I have done something that act was uh, foolish or wrong okay. in and of itself. Well, I think foolish is important. Foolish. Because it could be, you could yeah, be, yeah. It could sorry, be. I didn't have the intent to do this. I think back immediately to a college party where I slid across the dance floor and accidentally just took a friend out under the knees. Yep. It's like, I wasn't aiming for you, but I am genuinely sorry. Yes. And in hindsight, that I was shouldn't have done this. Yes. So it's, there was no intent or ill will, but I also am... In hindsight, I shouldn't have done this. I should not have done this, and I intend to behave differently in similar situations in the future because I learned something that about this, was this type a of reckless behavior. dance move. Versus, yeah. So in that situation, if I like had done that and knocked someone out, even though I didn't mean to, that's that's it. I am sorry. Yes, I am sorry. Yeah. Okay, I thought at first you were saying you had to have had like reflect on your intent and realize yes. it wasn't good. Um, but there was. I mean, I'll give you an example. My my brother and I were. Uh, arguing as we often do on the roof in front of my mom. And my mom doesn't live with us. She was like, what is going on? My family's breaking apart. (laughs) And this is, this is every day between uh, he and I. And then five minutes later, do you want to play Apex? Yes, but you have to tell me that I'm amazing. (laughs) Just get shut up and get on. You know what I mean? It's like, that's, that's our, uh, that's how we do it. And she was upset by it. And for her, I was like, look, I'm sorry that you're upset, which I know that people, 
<clears throat> often feel as a, a cop out, but that, that 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 is what I am sorry for in that situation. Like I do not deeply regret nor intend to change bickering with your brother. bickering with my brother because it has upset you. And so so I'm reflecting on like what sorry means multiplied by the fact that I didn't do this thing, but it is seems that I have done this thing. Mm-hmm. But also, <laughs> it was just uh, it was you know an interesting philosophical thing. And one of the things that I think I I had to wrap my head around is like I really uh, need to push back on the credit that I get for Charisma on a Command. Mm. Because while I am a large creator of some of the things, I told you in the past, there is a girl, you know this. Oh yeah, this is awesome. Who on a dating app, you can like send something that you want to when you're when you're contacting someone. She said, oh my God, I love your video on Chris Hemsworth. I watch it all the time. <laughs> and it's like- I made that one. That's awesome. I didn't make that video. <laughs> and and uh, we didn't, I didn't, it just she wasn't my type or for whatever reason, but it, we didn't um, go out or anything like that. But uh, I I like to think that she's a huge fan, <laughs> has dozens of favorite videos, just happened to pick that one. And then I really wanted you to write back and just say, oh, that's uh, a bummer. I didn't make that video. So I guess we shouldn't go out <laughs> just to have her be like, no, wait, I meant the Jordan <laughs> Peterson one. No, wait, Sorry, I meant didn't do that one. Don Draper. No, uh, please. And and I and I wouldn't have taken credit for that uh, but I didn't have the same, like, I thought it was funny and I told you, but I do have to, uh, just really in my head, you know, they talk about when you get negative comments, one of the, one of the ways to deal with negative comments is to also stop taking the positive ones so seriously mm-hmm. because they both are coming from a flawed, imperfect perception. And, and they both contain sometimes valuable points of feedback, things that you can do better, things that you can grow from, but you do have to, uh, disconnect, I think, evenly from them in order to have a healthy perspective on feedback from the world. And that, that was just something that I was, I was like, okay, yeah. That I, said, please keep making positive comments on the podcast and the YouTube <laughs> channel. Because when other people get to the channel, it would be a bummer if they only saw negative comments <laughs> because Charlie's constantly dissuading positive ones. No, I don't mean to dissuade. I don't mean to dissuade any comments. And the ones I'm more aware, more aware of the podcast stuff. But so, yeah, I think everybody experiences uh, being misperceived, like just flatly misperceived. Uh, and... I think it's it's unfortunate when it's occurring on a scale that you could potentially ima- imagine fixing because then it creates behaviors that cause you to think that you could have total control over the way that people see you and you could ma- micromanage that. And one of the uh, blessings of having had a large audience is that it has caused me to go like, this is, this is just officially at a scale that on my best day with my mo- most perfectly chosen words, I cannot control. I think it's something everyone wrestles with, though. I think, mm-hmm. pe- you know, you make a joke and people take it the wrong way or you're nervous and so you make a bad impression. I, I imagine a lot of people can reflect on a time where they're like, I really feel like this didn't represent me. And if you only got to see the real yeah, me. Yeah. And so now if I could just show you the real me, you would want to be my friend or mentor or, you know, date me or whatever. Or not is. hate me. Yeah, yeah. That's the other thing. I, I, I think that people probably have this healthy desire to just like make sure that there's no one wandering around in the world with just a, an awful vile opinion of them, mm. you know, and, it, and it's, that's a healthy uh, feeling to have well, in a, small groups. It's a necessity. If you live in yeah. a tribe, Yeah, <laughs> if you're in a tribe of 50 people, it's a very, very good instinct to make sure none of them have a negative opinion of you. Yeah. And it, it breaks as you scale. Yeah. <laughs> it, is, it is a, it goes from an adaptive way of approaching the world to a maladaptive way of approaching the world. So um, let me think. Of that scale doesn't even have to be famous, by the way. It could just be living in a big city. 
because then I think that's also where that fear of approaching someone you're attracted to comes from. Mm-hmm. It's this idea that, oh, if we, if we were in high school still and we had a hundred people in our graduate class and people found out that I asked two people out and got rejected, this is going to hurt me in my mm-hmm. high school career. Right. But now you live in New York or Philly or Miami or whatever, it's, and you still have that instinct. And it's like, no, you can go talk to people and have it not go well and then just keep living your life unaffected. Mm-hmm. And I think people have a disproportionate fear of rejection because it doesn't feel like that emotionally, even though they know it in their brain. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. It doesn't feel like you can just go start, shoot your shot, have it go terribly, walk away and be completely unaffected. Mm -hmm. So that's why you have this weird social anxiety that has no actual consequences, but feels extremely real. Sure. Tribal brains in a globalized city life. Um, One, one question. So, you know, you strive for authenticity as a person and this is what I was like wrestling with at night. I was like, what's the authentic way to respond to a misperception about me that is on a blasted platform that not everybody saw? So how does a brand be authentic? Is that even, is that just a, an oxymoron? Like, does a brand have <laughs> any sort of center or core that is meaningful? Well, I, well, I don't know about the word meaningful, but I think that's where the term on brand mm-hmm. comes from. I think that, I think there are identities to a brand. So mm-hmm. if you, if your brand is luxury versus accessibility versus being modern versus being classic, then you try to make your social media, your marketing, your aesthetic all fit what your brand is. So I think you're trying to be authentic to your brand. And so on brand and off brand is, I think, a measure of basically, are you being authentic to what your brand is? And well, here's the other thing. Your brand isn't anything. Your brand is just, you know, a construction of social media posts, perhaps by a team. So I guess what authenticity in humans is if not a moral issue there's something like spiritual about it like there is there is a center of you or a core or a real um, it, it appears yeah it bra- an authentic br- brand is certainly a bit more of a construction and it's a practical choice it's not like look there's nothing moral about well patagonia's brand mm-hmm. is to be conscious of the environment and try to make things that last a long time and are reusable and so i think there could be a meeting where someone said hey we could make a lot more money if we cut costs on these products. No mm-hmm. one would really know. Let's just make them cheaper and margins would grow. And then I think the authentic on-brand thing to do is for the people on the team to go, hey, you're new here. That's not how we work. We aren't going to sacrifice quality. We want someone to buy this backpack once and use it for 20 years. Yeah. And so they take the profit hit to do that. And I think that would be authentic for the brand. But that what I'm that isn't a good thing because it's on brand. That's good because the values that they have previously said were on the brand are good values to have, like recycling and reusing stuff. Sure. So, like, if a brand that was a crappy brand, I don't know, like Hugo Boss making suits for the Nazis and stuff, like decided to go become inauthentic and stop selling. Well, I don't know that authenticity is always good. Like, if mm-hmm. if you're a pedophile or a serial killer, you don't necessarily mm-hmm. want to be authentic to your inner urges. Mm-hmm. Well, now we're going, this is not where I expected to go. Um, <laughs> I think that what the authenticity that I'm describing is, is, was like that part of the sorry. Do I truly, did I, did, was my moral sense of what happened that this was a wrong thing and I will change it in the future and I intend to, I guess that can occur on a brand level. Like you can make sweeping lasting changes and pivot tylenol did right they started putting on the safety caps uh i know that they got tampered with at one point they had they a got tampered recall. people were spiking yeah. their 
uh, packages. I don't think people. It's probably like one. Yeah, one person was <laughs> spiking their packages yeah. and it was hurting people. So they did a massive recall and then they changed their safety. So I don't know mm-hmm. if that counts, but they did a sweeping change to try to be on brand with protecting people. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. But anyway, before we go too far down a rabbit hole there, where I'm just confusing myself. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a handful of So did you end up things. just, what did you do about the? Went to bed. And then woke up in the morning and then you had said, you said what I wanted because I didn't do anything. You're like, I think we should delete it. I was like, that feels, I wanted to, but I was, I was in that person trap of, of the, look, I didn't say this joke, but if I had been in an environment and I chose to say this joke, I don't think it's, it's really that bad. Like to be deeply oh, no. well, disappointed in this joke is from my personal Charlie Hooper perspective, an overreaction. Uh, yeah, but maybe. I also wouldn't walk into a room of 3,000 strangers and be like... 70,000. <laughs> 70,000 strangers and be like, da 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 Like, because that is... This is the other thing about communication is that there's a there's an expected audience and a context for every communication such mm-hmm. that that joke between me and people who understand me is totally fine. Or if I walk into, like, if it's the opener to a speech that I have at a personal development, it's, it's the worst, stupidest, meanest unnecessary thing well bill burr talks about this he says if you come to my show that i'm hosting and you know it's me Mm -hmm. and then you tell me i can't make a joke you should just quietly leave but if you hire me for a corporate event and ahead of time you say here are the guidelines they go from here to here and then i step out and i step out of those guidelines then you should come ream me or you should ream me publicly he said people confuse those two so they'll heckle me at my own show instead of just leaving this is my show but if I come to your event and I agree to your rules and then I don't follow them, then I'm just being a dick. So yeah, I think this even comedians understand there's a context with which so that was certain what things I was, are appropriate. I was dealing with that is that I had because the email had landed in my personal inbox, the it felt like it was a personal thing towards me, which is like you can't do this and we are talking. And in that circumstance, it's like if I had said this joke, I don't know that this would be a sorry moment. But given the context of where it occurred. Well, maybe it was easier for me to make the call because people don't think it's me. Yeah. No one thought I posted it. But from my perspective, the, the call I made was delete it. And then someone on the team said, should we put a public apology? And I said, no, that's that's unnecessary and too far the other direction. Let's mm-hmm. just take it down. Shouldn't have been posted. Now we have new guidelines for what to post. And then you just mm-hmm. move on. Keep making charisma advice. Well, it's made me it's we've talked about it in the past, but it really did make me think a lot about context. And I was like, do I stand behind this joke as an okay thing to say. And I was like, it really depends on where. And it really depends on what was said the second prior to this. <laughs> you know, right, it, like, right, right. it depends on, it depends on so many factors. And, and there is a, there's a circumstance in which I'm totally fine with this. And there's also a circumstance, which is like the, this one where I'm like, ah, this, sh- I, this is a no for me. Well, um, in retrospect in the morning when you said, I was like, yeah, that feels right given this particular context. Yeah. I mean, uh, all the comedians talk about this. I, when I was doing the video on Pete Davidson, he talks about, he had this big, to do because he had people signing NDAs and putting their phones away in order to come to his show. And everyone's like, why were you doing that? He said, I get taken out of context all the time. Mm -hmm. People just take the worst sentence I say. They don't even bother to slap on the four sentences I said prior. And then they make me look like something that is completely unrepresentative of the experience you have if you're in Mm -hmm. the room. And his perspective was pretty interesting because he said, you might think that when a joke leaks, it's because someone was genuinely offended. And that happens some of the time. But also people show up with notepads to my shows because mm-hmm. of the no phone rule, which is why I started the NDA, because they are journalists that just know that if they take me out of context, they'll get clicks. Yeah. So they pay the ticket because the price of the ticket is worth less than the amount of money or esteem they'll get at their job 
to purposely take me out of context. He said, you don't just show up to a comedy show if you're there as a genuine participant with a notepad. And I'll just look and I'll just see people <laughs> take notes. So he said, that's why I did the NDA. Interesting. Because so, people, some journalists who that's how they make their money can appreciate how important removing context is. Yeah. Well, it's it's like a weirdly innovative way to tell a lie is by putting quotes around something that was genuinely said. And it's for people who haven't thought, I think, deeply about the philosophy of communication, when you don't think that there is a necessary audience and there's a necessary context, that that, that is a way to tell a lie, is to, is to, is to grab a, a chunk of what someone said, slap it in quotes, it could be the literal words that came out of their mouth, but represent it as the truth of the situation. It's not. This was also like a theme in the things they carried, which is a Vietnam, uh, it's like a... It's it's I don't know what it is. It's it's a fictional book about Vietnam by a by a guy who was in Vietnam. Mm. Who at one point he's like he's like none of this happened, but it all happened, and this is the truest way I know how to say it. And it's you know that was the first time I encountered like this isn't true, but it's creating the correct effect in you. And uh, it's an interesting it's an interesting idea of of where truth at least in communication lies is it in re- is it in saying the words sterilely in print at 7 a.m over coffee in front of somebody who wasn't at a comedy yeah, show yeah. or is it you know is well, it, face this is did you have to be there this is all the political stuff on facebook is is also dangerous for this i remember the rudy giuliani clip that went around where he says there there have not been or what did it say barack obama has been president for some for the worst terrorist attacks that the U.S. has ever dealt with was his quote. Barack Obama mm-hmm. is the, and everyone's like, except for 9-11. Mm-hmm. But if you watch the full clip, he literally says, with the exception of 9-11, yeah. Barack Obama is, and they just go, oh, we can just cut that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we don't have to include the with the exception of 9-11 part. And then we purposely make him look like an idiot. And then the the text says, Rudy Giuliani forgot about 9-11. Mm. So, so you watch the full clip. Then you remove the part where he says, except for 9-11. Then you write in text, Rudy Giuliani forgot about 9-11. And then you re- release it out into the world yeah. for a million views. And the people who weren't there for the original part just take it. How could you? How could this possibly be a lie? It's a video. It's not a deep fake. Yeah. He's saying it. So it's the most convincing lie you could possibly have because it's, it's video. that person yeah. speaking. And it seems so hard to imagine how it couldn't be what it's being presented as. I often feel these days when I encounter stuff like a defense attorney because I am imagining the most extreme circumstances. And I bet you I'm right a large portion of the time. Not that I nail the extreme circumstances, but why this thing that someone have has been alleged or has said or was taken in this could have potentially been something else. And I'm constantly, I guess just because of my experiences on the web, like that is where my head goes of, and I'm sure that I'm wrong some of the time that it is an accurate representation of, of what someone said, did or felt. Well, I think a lot of times in politics, people who have extremely strong feelings can very easily convince themselves the ends justify the means. So when, when Kavanaugh was being put up for Supreme Court, I'm not supporting him at all. But one of the people that came out with the stories about him, I believe she ended up saying, I made those stories up, but I just didn't want him to be a Supreme Court justice. It was, mm-hmm. it was so important that it was just obviously worth lying. And when people feel that way, then you have to assume there's bad actors out there. So when you see a random Facebook clip that seems really compelling, it's not impossible that somebody made this knowing it's a lie, but it's just more important that the people realize Rudy Giuliani is a bad guy. I know he's a bad guy. 
they don't realize he's a bad guy. It's harder to convince them he's a bad guy with the truth. Mm. So I'll just do this lie because at the end of the day, they're getting the right impression. I'm not really lying because he is a bad guy and that's what we're all solving this for. Is, uh, so it's a, it's a very much an ends justifies the means mindset, I think. So I, I hadn't written this because we kind of talked about it, but you brought it up. Brett Wines, Brett, uh, Harvey Weinstein, Brett Weinstein. So Brett Weinstein. <laughs> I have to do that in my head almost. Like Einstein. Time. Yeah, it's the opposite of that. Um, he, we, we'd spoken about the ivermectin thing last week. Literally while he was on Joe Rogan, I had no idea talking about some of the censorship that he'd experienced from YouTube. I watched, I didn't see Joe Rogan because I'm a YouTuber, not a Spotify. Uh, but I did watch him on Lex Friedman. And one of the things that he says is, I think in his opinion that the CDC ha- seems to have adopted this ends justify the means approach to public communication, which was early in the pandemic when they feared that the masks might get gobbled up by non-essential workers. They downplayed the importance of masks and said they weren't as important and they might not protect when they knew that that was the case. But they were trying to create a scenario where there wasn't a public run on masks. Is that is that true? That that they're, the the timing is, lines up that they knew the masks were helpful and then publicly announced that masks weren't important. That's a great question because what could have happened is that they could have announced masks were important, then done studies, found out they were important, and then released the new. Because I do think it's okay to learn I, more over time. I imagine that there's a ton of nuance to it. Um, it was it was a thing that Brett had cited as. I don't know that he cited it as a guaranteed truth, but it was something that he had mentioned. Mm. Uh, he seems also to think that in that same vein of a useful truth for, for for compelling public action is the is the push to get everyone vaccinated or everyone above age. Um, and there's reasons for that, and there's, they're complex because, okay, the r not, which is the ability of this virus to spread, is right now at roughly 60%, but... If there's mutations, the r not can go up, which means that you need to vaccinate a higher proportion of the population. So rather than communicating this difficult to understand, you know, actually some of you might not need to get vaccinated and don't need to take on whatever small risk that entails for you, whether it is getting sick or there's an adverse reaction or something like that. Because if they were to say that, his opinion of their opinion is that people, it would be a tragedy of the commons and people mm-hmm. be like, oh, I'm well, you take the risk. I don't want to take the risk. And tragedy of the commons is a very real thing. It's a very real thing. And so I don't know the answer to this, but he was just, see, he seems to believe that the CDC has a has this semi-Machiavellian view of mass communication, which is- Which might be well-intentioned. Which, and might be the right thing to do. I mean, how can you communicate the uh, <laughs> the, the nuances of, of a public vaccination campaign to- 300 million people of varying degrees of intelligence who who only are going to read four words like or hear four words repeated and even if you do do that is that just going to get choked down and memefied by the news apparatus to something that you, that is even further from what you intended to say so it, there's not an easy answer but this mass communication is really like a philosophical nightmare mm-hmm. <laughs> in terms of how to deal with truth and what the truth is and understanding that everything is going to get twisted and i guess it does kind of point back to how even communication one-on-one, these problems all exist, but just at smaller scale. So anyway, I didn't, I didn't want to say too much about that, but you had, you mentioned something that made me recall it. Do you want me to continue with my topics or do you want to? I don't care. I got some, you got some. All right. We're just going to, just going to go through all this random stuff. So, uh, listen to a good podcast. It's on, I think it's on 
the email newsletter is called Sounds True. It's a website that that I had signed up for an Eckhart Tolle class on, and they do spiritual, sometimes woo-woo stuff, but sometimes also like really interesting, cutting-edge trauma philosophy or psychology. So they had a guy on who is the, I think he started or pioneered internal family systems therapy, which is the one that I really like with different parts. Mm. Um, and he's got a new book coming out in just a few days called No Bad Parts. I'm going to buy it for sure. And I listened to just half of his podcast, but he talks about the idea that we do, we are all multiple personalities. Uh, the the myth of a unitary mind is actually very destructive and it's it's much more useful to conceive of yourself as having dominant personality and several sub personalities which can vie for control disagree be aware of one another, or be unaware of one another Mm. um and the idea is that what we do is we demonize the parts that uh, don't get us what we want so if you are a crybaby or something like that you're likely to say you know i hate that i hate that i'm this way i hate that i'm this way and what that is inside of you is the parts of you that are not this way pointing the finger at the part that is upset and being like, you suck, we wish you were dead. <laughs> like, we want to remove you from the system. But his whole therapy, and he kind of talks about how he came to this, is in realizing that, like, these parts don't go away. Like, mm-hmm. you can you can try to kill them, hang them, like, drown them, do whatever you want. Like, they just go underground and exert subconscious influence uh, and create problems. So he has, his whole system of therapy is the idea that there are no bad parts, and what you need to do is get some of the more dominant parts, ask them to step aside for a period of time so that you can interact with these parts that you might not like as much to get past, you know, your crybaby. How do you feel about that? I fucking hate it. Okay, what is this part doing for you? How is it, you know, what is its intention? What is it? And, and you often find that they're like frozen in time and some sort of traumatic experience doing their best to give you what you need. And they are, because they are so constantly like, pointed at and shamed by the other parts they can't get out of that stasis cocoon so just one thing that i thought he gave an example of you know she said okay what about people who do awful things like child molesters or things like that he's like i've actually worked with a lot of child molesters and for instance one of the things that you see is oftentimes there's abuse in their life and Mm -hmm. oftentimes what happens is that they're experiencing this abuse and when you do go and talk to the part be like why do you do this it's because the part of them that was frozen in time was helpless, didn't know what to do, and said, who has the power in this situation? It's like, that guy does. And so it goes, that's what we're going to do. Like, we're going to be the powerful ones, and that way we'll be safe. And it takes that energy on at that point, gets frozen in time. The person grows up. This this impulse urge energy to be the powerful one in that situation is still there. And then, you know, they go act out on those behaviors. And it's not to excuse it but it is a potentially better way of like unraveling Mm. those sorts of behaviors then so it's a really interesting podcast i think it's on sounds true it's the most recent one with it's called no bad parts if you want to check it out you know what i've wondered but i don't have an answer to for that now there's different types of pedophilia if it having sex with a six-year-old or whatever but it's traumatic in today's society if a 28 year old has sex with a 14 year old Mm -hmm. But there was a time in human history where that was super common. Just what happened, right? They, they would get married at that age. Mm-hmm. Was it traumatic back then? Was everybody being traumatized and then they had to deal with that and carry that with them? But it just didn't matter because women weren't 
at the level where they got to vote or because they were dying at 35 anyway? Or is there something that makes it traumatic today that but not traumatic back then. Yeah. I, I mean, don't know the answer. Take but on, there's Greek pederasty. I mean, on the urns, they have these like old men like grabbing the balls of, of younger guys. And, and there was the idea that these men would mentor young boys and that would include not all the time, but often a sexual relationship with them or something like that. And yeah, I've asked myself that same question. Um, I do think that a, some portion of trauma is shame. Like it perhaps... I, th I think that there's, you know, incidents and, and things can cause trauma, but w particularly with um, with the stuff that we're talking about, I think that a solid chunk of it can be the shame of this happened to me, this shouldn't have happened to me, it must mean something about me, I can't tell anyone about this, and the festering of that over time. But who knows, man? I've asked myself that same question because... Yeah, I'm not, uh, not saying that it's... Not, not saying that it's necessarily bad that we've decided that this is a trauma and, and that the feelings that people have are that it's traumatic and maybe there should be shame because we don't want these age gaps. I'm not saying anything prescriptive. It's, I just have a thought in the past. It's interesting because these things that are very traumatic to people, like legitimately, yeah, unquestionably yeah. very traumatic to people, were very common in the past. They might have had a party and a wedding and yeah. and, and, and then like that might have been a thing and you, and you might have woken up the next day with your husband and... Was that, yeah, a, a, a burden that you carried for the rest of your life? Or or because there was a social thing that encouraged it and, and made it okay, was it okay? Um, yeah, that's my question. I don't know, man. <laughs> I really, I've asked myself that same question. Uh, I, you know, I've talked about my experience a little bit on here. But as I reflected on it, I was like a huge chunk of what I experienced. Because there, was, there wasn't any pain or like harm in that way. So mm -hmm. for me shame is like if, if I could remove one or the other like the event or whatever or the shame I was like oh my god what what fucked me was the shame for sure um so but I don't know about other people and circumstances that are not exactly like mine so but I I, I have asked myself that good question your turn or my turn I got a totally, I got a tangent, but I don't think we'll have a lot of things that tie directly <laughs> to pedophilia. So <laughs> I was just thinking this is, this is less, what we will do current events. Just have no monetization. <laughs> well, so here's my, my thought, my shower thought was when you are a kid as a, as a boy, you think girls are gross and you get told that you're going to have romantic feelings for girls. And for 85% of boys, that ends up being true. You're in your teens or early 20s. You're going to the bar every night. You're going to the club every night. Adults are telling you you're going to outgrow this. And you say, no, you're stupid. Partying is the greatest thing in the world, at least for some section of the population. I know this was true of me. It's like, mm -hmm. this is the greatest thing. I'm never, why would I ever stop doing this? And then you outgrow it. And young people tend to be politically liberal. Old people tend to be politically conservative. There's these trends, these like truisms mm -hmm. that they don't feel true in the moment. When you're the 19-year-old super liberal person, you go, I'm never going to be conservative. And when you're the six-year-old or four-year-old boy, you go, I'm never going to like girls. They have cooties. What is the thing today for 33-year-olds, because that's how old I am, that 40-year-olds and 50-year-olds would say changes over time that I feel like will never happen, but will absolutely kids. happen? I mean, I think it's kids. You think it's kids? It's not, I mean, what is, well, what's left? I don't know. I didn't have an answer. I was just thinking about it. I was like, I'm... They're always right. These truisms are almost no, always not. right. No, no, you're going to regret leaving your job. You're, you're, you're cherry picking. 
the truisms are no no but that's not a truism you're going to regret leaving your job i feel uh, like there's like coming of age truisms where someone older than you tells you'll you grow you're going to outgrow this. no you'll grow out of this idea that this pie in the sky do whatever you want go live on the beach you know i uh, come on i i i travel too i i spent six months in the peace corps like you'll settle down and have a job for sure no well uh, that, I, I, that wasn't the feedback we got the feedback we got was from people who never did it who said you shouldn't do it the it wasn't I, from people who had blazed the path no no entrepreneur came to us and said hey listen i i my moved. dad tried to start a business i know a lot of people who tried to start businesses like they they often didn't work and sure but no one came through and was like hey this worked but was unfulfilling sure yeah 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 I agree. Uh, but that that's true of, I think, a lot of these other ones. Like, take kids. Okay, it's likely to be true, and I, and I think it is. But uh, you got to talk to the 70-year-old who doesn't have kids. It's not fair to ask the 70-year-old who did have kids. I, I just am I'm pushing back against the idea that they're always true because I think that that's... Well, no, they're not always true. Not, some boys never have romantic feelings for girls. But I'm saying they're, they're majority, the vast majority of the time, they're accurate. I think if you have a category of things that people say to young people and say those things are, you'll grow out of this. To say that that is always true is- Well, it's uh, not you'll grow out of in it. Over, my in question, over My question is people have just lived the path before you, mm -hmm. tend to turn around, have accurate feedback for you mm -hmm. that just seems dead wrong, right? That yes. happens at most ages. Someone yes. that's just done this path before you. Listen, I, I was the kid at the bar. I was the four-year-old that didn't like girls. I was the I would, uh, I, super I was liberal the college who, kid. who hated his job. I, I think that I guess I, I agree that there are there are sections of uh, conventional wisdom that sound foolish to young the younger generation that uh, become oh wow okay uh, like I, I fell right into exactly what they said yeah, yeah. Exactly so what do you think predicted. is fool what do you think is a foolish thirty year old belief my thirty year old belief or a thirty year old belief either um, I think it's that acquiring money and stuff is what matters in life that you really need to like if you ask 70 year olds like you know what do you wish you spent more time doing they there's the five things i wish i didn't fall out of touch with friends i wish i didn't focus so much on work i wish i didn't sweat the small stuff um i think that yeah that that tends to be the stuff and i think a lot of 30 year olds though unlike us are are you know planning on having kids in in the near future so that's that's a personal thing but i don't know that that's a you think it's the focus on work the focus on wealth accumulation uh, what do other 30 year olds do? I mean, I have a bunch of weird 30 year old friends. This is a strange, I don't know the, um, stereotypical or prototypical 30 year old as well, I guess. Well, I guess. Okay. So for you step, you're, you what flash forward, say? no, you flash forward to seven years old. What do you think you look back on and go, Oh, I never thought I would have told you that wasn't the case, but that was absolutely the case. I'm not getting as much advice these days. A lot of like, um, my mom is the one that is constantly telling me that I need to uh, go get checked for blood clots because my dad got a blood clot and I need to go get my ankle checked because it was swollen the other day mm. and I need to, uh, my back hurt. I have to go to a Cairo. Like she, she's very concerned with my health in every single aspect. That was another truism though, yeah. to be fair. Mm -hmm. But older people used to say stuff like, oh, yeah, you got to stretch or, oh, yeah, yeah one yeah. day your body's going to hurt. And I said, no, you're just you just don't take good care of yourself. Yeah, I eat organic. I work out every single day. I stretch every single day. You're wrong. Mm -hmm. And then I hit 32 and I went, what the fuck? I've worked out every day and stretched every day and yeah, my back hurts sometimes when I wake up. So that, I think that's another truism, actually, that seems hard to believe at 22 or 25 mm -hmm. and then feels pretty real.
in your mid thirties. It's yeah, like, I mean, yep, this, this machine that I live in has slowed down a little bit. You want to move to Florida? <laughs> I think that's a, maybe another one that there's the kids one is one I buy that coin slots are awesome and slot machines slot machines are really cool and you'll probably enjoy them at some point that golf is an interesting sport to watch and play well I'll give you one that you will agree with uh I think it's easier it's harder to find this believable for some people now some people in their 20s will just say yeah this makes sense but I think that cities are overrated Mm-hmm. that a yard in the suburbs is pleasant. Yeah, yeah. That's something I think a lot of 20-year-olds, myself included, would said, that's stupid. Mm-hmm. And then as you get older, you see people start to, all my friends have left New York to live in yeah. Connecticut or New Jersey or Hoboken. That's in New Jersey. But to just to get more space for themselves, even before having kids, just to get the space and be away from the noise. And I, I'm, I find that believable now. I'm still in a major city, but I go, yeah, I could totally see that being yeah, I guess in its better than being close to everything. I mean, I guess what's interesting is if you look at the way that dads dress with their like goofy strap sandals and their khaki cargo shorts and my dad has like a bucket hat. So oh, yeah. He pra- doesn't get, practicality like, over fashion. Well, what I realize is that I've been practicality over fashion my whole life, except that like I'm wearing gym shorts and a T-shirt. This was totally cool in high school and progressively less cool as I got farther and farther away from high school. So if, if I hit 40 and I'm wearing exactly what I'm wearing today, that will just, I will just be the dad <laughs> who yeah, is, who yeah, is yeah. so far away. And you had mentioned conservatives and, you know, you grow up and then you become a conservative. I think it's really that you just may, you just stay a 20 year old progressive forever. Like wherever you were at 20 is like, you want to move the world forward with that, that mind's eye, because that, that, those are the understandings that you went out into the world with. And that's the game that you played. Oh, yeah. And what that's is, how you made yourself. And you're like, okay, this is the game. And we moved it forward a little bit. And now that I've been playing this game, this is where we stay because this is the game. And uh, we moved it forward and we were done with that. Now now we've gone too far. But then, you know, the new generation comes up and is like, we want to move it forward, forward. Yeah, I do think in the political case, it's actually not necessarily that people's views change dramatically, but where, the, where their standing gets relabeled. Exactly. I think that that's... Yeah, I think that's the case. They People believe the things that they believed at 25 when yeah. they're 55, 65, 75, 85. More I don't know. That. Yeah, I don't know what he said, but I, Bill Burr has a joke about Donald Sterling where he says, I think Donald Sterling, according to Bill Burr, the quote was, I don't care if you have sex with, he, he, it's his girlfriend. I don't care if you cheat on me with black guys, just don't post it on Instagram. Yeah. And everybody said it's racist that you don't want your girlfriend posting photos with black guys on Instagram. Bill Burr's take was, this guy's saying his girlfriend can cheat on him with black guys. He's 78 years old. When he was 28, he probably said this out loud. He's a progressive. And it was like, yeah. what the hell's going on? What are you talking about? Yeah. You know, and it's obviously facetious. It's not actually a reflection of the situation, but it is, I think it's a funny idea that represents what probably does happen, which is people just keep their views, but the world changes around them. And then mm-hmm. their views go from being liberal to conservative. Yeah. And, and it sounds like just, it sounds like in that world, it's like, oh, we always want to be moving things forward, which there's a obviously a degree of truth in that. You don't want to get stuck. But the conservatives thing is that, and I, I'm discovering this, uh, I don't know if I'm American conservative or whatnot, but that there is a value in the way that things had been done. And if I, if I don't understand that value, I can't accurate, I can't safely throw it out. Um, I need to understand it to a degree. Now, this wasn't always true. Like at some point I was like, hey, is there a value to a, a desk job? Like, I don't see it. I'm out, <laughs> you know, and and it worked. Um, so there is a, you know, maybe you just have to throw caution to the wind sometimes. But 
I, I talked in past podcasts about how traditions off, like religious traditions have very practical things where it actually helps with the elk hunt. If you cra- if you burn the scapula of the last elk and you crack and you use that as a map because that randomizes where you go to find the next elk instead of following predictable patterns. So you're always surprising the elk based on cracks in the last one's scapula. Like obviously that's a, that's a stupid thing and it's not giving you a map, but it has some... It's superior use. than letting humans just go back to like, where they. You know where I'm going to go today? The place with the easy trail to get to because, <laughs> like, that's where I, I got enjoy last that. Time. I enjoy yeah. that walk, and it's got a nice tree on the way, and I got him there last time. And you know, there's four places that I go to as opposed to oh damn, this one is like up that craggy mountain, and oh, what do you know? It led to like this awesome spot that elk thought they were safe, but they're not because <laughs> the scapula Cause of the led bone. us here. <laughs> um, so yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot more of that that I'm seeing. Um, but it's, yeah, to say that it's one or the other is silly because a lot of conventional wisdom is also trash. And I only discover that by living it for a while and then going, damn, you set me down the wrong the You betray me. Yeah. Um, this was something that I, I won't even try to connect it because it's only vaguely similar. I watched Russell. I watched a lot of podcasts. I watched Russell Brand talk to Ben Shapiro. Okay. And Russell is just, he is so freaking likable like mm. it's it's he's he said an, another level of uh charisma does ben like him everybody likes russell i think everybody if you talk to him they're just so dissimilar too there was a couple of things that did it from a charisma perspective that uh, this tied into their speech so they're talking and every 15 to 20 minutes ben's goes that's amazing and i want to get to that but first do you have life insurance and russell's and because he's he's reading sponsorships he's, he reads three sponsorships mm. in an hour show and Russell's out there. He's, you know, that he's like spiritual, anti-corporate. Went up on the Hugo Boss thing and talked about the whole Nazi connection, and that kind of was the end of him being a <laughs> uh, like red carpet celebrity. Uh, and he, instead of staying quiet or doing anything, he's like, "Yes, Ben, I was worried about this. What will happen to my kids and my wife, please?" And he he plays with it. Yeah. And. I'm sitting there going like, this is annoying. This is like you shilling life insurance and then shilling ExpressVPN telling people that it keeps them safe on the internet, which is really not true. Yeah. Like that's not what this VPN does. You know, and, and when the VPN comes up, it goes, I was worried about my internet safety, Ben. What can I do? If only there was some way to protect myself. So he like, he plays and it's so likable. But, and I'm sitting there going like, man, I would have potentially been less likable in this moment because I probably would have just stayed quiet. But my head would be going like, VPNs don't do the things that YouTubers say that they do. They help you get uh, British Netflix is what VPNs <laughs> are good for. They're, they they just take what your IP server or your your one uh, company had, your Comcast, the data that they have, and they move it over to Express. It's still hackable. It's still not totally safe. Still the government can subpoena them and get it. It doesn't completely encrypt anything. As far, That's my understanding based on... Edward Snowden. Um, Snowden and there was another, there's another YouTuber who does this kind of stuff. He's an English guy, Tom Scott. Um, but Russell's awesome. Russell. And I was just like, man, what's the better way to be? And it's his philosophy that he explains is I've got my way of doing things, but it's my way. It's not the best way. I believe in small community living, live and let live. And like, you know, he might not do express VPN, but he's just like supportive. And it creates an interesting conversation that they never get to the bottom to because Russell is just so you do you where Ben keeps trying to come back and say, what about in circumstances where your neighbors are doing something that you think is horrible or you're doing something that they think is anti-religious? How does that work? And they had, they didn't get there, but there was an interesting question that I don't know if you have a take on about uh, 
the limits of live and let live, which is like, okay, we're live and let live. Everybody needs to do what they want. The society next door is marrying off eight-year-old girls. Do we live and let live? Do we, what do we do? Or they're killing off eight-year-old girls in some sort of Mayan <laughs> yeah. sacrifice to the gods. What, what do you do? Um, what well, are the limits of live and let live? My first thought is that live and let live in a world where not everyone has that philosophy it's just a losing strategy. Exactly. That's another. So, so it's totally fine. I'm actually not saying don't do live and let live, but a, a parallel, it's not exactly the same, is in Judaism, when someone tries to convert, the rabbi has to talk them out of it three times. And when you get through those conversations and show that you're dedicated, you convert. By contrast, Christianity goes the other route, tries to recruit. Well, one of them is much bigger than the other. <laughs> and I think that there, I think it's, the Jewish strategy is a bit like panda bears who don't breed. It's yeah. just an obvious, that's not how you grow. Now you could try to have 12 kids per family to grow that way. But in terms of live and let live, if you are a small hundred person village and that's your philosophy and the hundred person village next to you is we respect strength, military power is supreme and our goal is to conquer. They're just going to build better weapons than you and then come kill you all. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't make it a, morally bad or unhappy way for you to live but you're just gonna get wiped out eventually because i don't think the world has that strategy this is kind of i don't know if you, you're not totally familiar with it we talked a little bit leo and i when i talked from leo from actualize about spiral dynamics i did not watch that episode no, didn't didn't think you did <laughs> <laughs> um it's the idea is that there isn't like it's not that live and let live is good or bad it is that it is a suitable and perhaps even good approach to life in a particular historical context. Mm -hmm. And it's, that's exactly what you're saying. Like once, once we hash out the wars and everybody builds an army and they build a castle and one king gets a tribe and then he gets a kingdom and then he gets his head cut off and democracy comes up and then they uh, demand better education so that they can get things. And we you know, like, then live and let live becomes like an enlightened viable strategy. And if you agree with the laws of your nation, the because foundational if I, because if yeah. i live and let live and yeah. the person next to me is a cannibal mm -hmm. i will just call the police <laughs> who will enforce it for me yeah so i can live and let live because when this person does something well, i think yeah, is yeah. wrong but i don't have to well take cannibal away because that one's like oh that's that's not living and let living let's just take something that is uh we agree would be horrible like uh raping small kids you know that everyone stays alive like this is a difference of values in one thing. It is a sacred right and, and things well, like that. I guess what happen. I'm saying is live and let live is actually, it's more like live and let live until a boundary is crossed. And I assume everyone has. Who decides the boundaries is the question that Ben was pointing to Russell that Russell. Well, my point is everyone has their boundaries, even Russell. Mm -hmm. Russell won't live and let live forever. Mm -hmm. That's what I just am realizing as we talk through this. Yeah. Is that no one actually lives and let lives. They mm -hmm. all live and let live until their boundary is crossed. Yeah. Yeah. And it's and, and this some is, people have longer, further their boundaries are further away, and you can you can have noisy parties, you can have this. But if someone were coming in, fucking with Russell's family, I do not think he would continue to live and let live. Yes, probably correct. And I guess this is kind of like the history of the world is is as we because it only takes one bad actor, one guy to start a holocaust to be like, well, shoot, we want to remain neutral, but <laughs> if, you, if you living and let living. And your neighbor says, oh, I'm going to start molesting your little daughter, Russell. Mm -hmm. Russell is not going to live and let live. And I think mm -hmm. that's true of all of us. So it's maybe important to recognize, at least my what I'm thinking is, live and let live really says, to what degree will you 
tolerate differences. Deal with someone doing something that you wish they wouldn't or that you think is immoral. Yeah. Because we all have a line. Even, and I, what I just want to make clear is it doesn't have to be your family. Like, say that they're like, look, in your community, we won't touch you. We won't do anything. But in our community, I'm, use your imagination. I'm saying what maybe <laughs> Russell would say, well, that's their community. And I'm saying I, I'll just keep moving the line until yeah. we find your boundary. But yeah, everyone yeah. has their boundary. No well, one's yeah, actually. My religion says that actually uh, the boundary of your community moves one foot to the left every day. And so your community is shrinking, according to my God. And I, we have religious freedom and you agree upon religious freedom. So. You know, like that these conflicts are, will necessarily occur uh, until and it seems like the world is is slowly moving towards like a technological base where we are intertwined via technology and economics such that it doesn't make sense for someone to defect in these friend or foe games and just try to take all of your stuff and then move along. Um, and that allows for like more enlightened sophisticated strategies to life the interesting, to, to emerge the interesting thing to me is to hear that russell's not really proselytizing anymore because i feel like at one point he was very adamant about making a world-changing movement and yeah. pushing enlightenment forward and he was a, kind of an evangelist mm -hmm. it's interesting it sounds yeah, like now he's revolution yeah now he's not he's very much it sounds like moved more towards internal towards his own family towards yeah. the people that live near him. I think he surprised Ben at that moment. He's like, well, I think we'll disagree. And Russell's like, look, he's, he's basically like, look, man, like, people think I'm a communist because I wrote a book called Revolution. Like, I want my local community. I want to live next to people who think the things that I think. Mm -hmm. And I want to be left alone to was, do what we want to do. Was that true all the time, though? I, I thought at one point he was saying he thinks he way people more should. No, he was, I thought there was a should, a prescriptive should at some point. He still has a should, but it, you're right, I think, to intuit that it's less forceful. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. He's like, look, it's not good that the that these corporations control so much of everything. And I think he he was more vocal and active and uh, vote or don't vote or get this candidate and don't. And I think he is much more like, how about you guys just leave me alone and me and my. Yeah, I wonder what made the <laughs> so switch. I think that it's it wears you out to be an evangelist. I mean, we had the same experience with with charisma and stuff and the four hour work week. Like first thing we did with the four hour work week was not start a business. It was demand that everyone else quit their job. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was our first order of business. We just run around and pester everyone. We found the truth. We found our new religion. <laughs> yes. And everyone needed to do it. And eventually we did become more like, look, this works for me. But I, and I truly mean it's not for everybody. I get, I get that it is not for everybody to quit their nine to five and free up their time and all this. And I've, cause I've seen it gone. I've seen it go uh, run counter to what makes people feel secure and happy to do it the way that I've done it. So I think that it, that is a natural 
evolution from I found the truth, I'm an evangelist, to like, I'm just going to live this quietly in my little area because it oh, works. Interesting. I found the truth. I try to spread the truth. Yeah. I quietly live the truth mm-hmm. and I let other people just find it on their own. Yeah. I have a, I have a still random stuff. Do you want to? Well, continue? I got one. We talked about it yeah. briefly. There's a YouTube video called fan with sign causes huge pile up <laughs> in stage one of the tour de France. France. And it is, uh, I mean, I watched it over and over. Uh, for people that don't know, there was a, a woman was trying to get a photo of the Tour de France. And I think what she was aiming for was she had a sign that she was trying to lean in and get someone to photograph. So it would be the photographer and then down the road, her and then down the road, the cyclists. And she mistimed it and her back is to the cyclists and she's out in the road and a cyclist clips her and falls, at which point the cyclist behind him runs into his head and falls at which point they are they are clustered hundreds within arms reach they could all just hold each other's hands for like i don't know 200 feet of just wall-to-wall cyclists yeah i don't really have a takeaway but if anyone hasn't seen it it's wild to watch he takes down 100 professional cyclists in the biggest race of the year and it is surreal it's it's painful to watch sometimes it's hard not to just laugh at the dark dark thing that you're watching so i saw it and i couldn't believe that it was happening yeah that the one that you i mean you sent it to me the one that it reminded me of was the helicopter rescue of the there was like a grandma who had fallen in some hike or something they went to pick her up in the the i don't know if it's called a gurney or what it is but it's the airlift orange thing and for some reason the cable gets spun and she starts spinning faster faster <laughs> and yeah that that hits my uh like i forget that there's a human in there but i know that there's the idea of a human and it just makes me cackle yeah and she's then, okay she came yeah. up no injuries she came the thing up. i was thinking about is how I, there's no this can't occur or hasn't occurred in other sports this would be like someone running into the nba finals and kicking lebron in the knee like you can run on the you can run on the court you could even pop the basketball yeah, no one's disrupted a game you know what i'm saying but this like is this. like yeah to, to the just outcome, ruin, the to outcome ruin. of stage one. Yeah. Someone got out ahead of it. Someone was unaffected. And that person now has a giant lead over all the people that got taken out. Yeah. It, it's just fascinating because for some people, for, for, a lot of people well, for, the, for the, a lot of people listening, they go, yeah, who cares? Tour de France. But that's someone's most important thing in their life. Yeah. And just got ruined by a fan that wanted an Instagram photo. So it just, just was interesting. Instagram is making the world a worse place, dude. Well, I've, I do and have always believed that yeah that i mean take away instagram that person doesn't does not engage in that behavior well maybe she was making a tiktok who knows yeah (laughs) to be fair would have been something um i have like things that don't connect to that at all let me see it's all right you see charles murray's making the rounds again that was one of the things i was gonna say yeah i'm i was surprised i thought that they had buried charles murray in the uh in the bay yeah they put cement on his feet and gotten rid of him so it's interesting to see he's circling around again. He's a, well, I had never seen him before. Um, that was one of the things that I was like, oh, I've literally never, I've, I've like, he's kind of like Voldemort. He, he, so Charles Murray, for those of you who have not heard, and I have not read any of his books, is uh, infamous, I think is the appropriate word, mm-hmm. for talking about the connections between race and IQ. And according to him, that there is mean average differences across different races and different groups which i believe like ashkenazi jews being at the far extreme high iq i don't know who's at the, who's at the far extreme left but he argues that the differences in outcome in america 
between uh, whites and blacks and Asians, with Asians being farther to the right, whites being relatively in the middle of those three, and then blacks being to the left, can be uh, somewhat or... I don't know if he says somewhat largely attributed. I think it's, a, I think it's a partially explained by differences in IQ. And by then, differences in mean level IQ. And, th- and what he says, there's a couple things he says. This doesn't mean that the highest IQ in America doesn't belong to a black guy. This mm-hmm. is about the average of the whole group. And also, we haven't done research yet to know if this is genetic or if this is due to nutrition or if this is due to quality of education does or he if say this that? is due to family. Yeah. I, is, is that his... So that was... That seems to me... And again, I, I haven't read the research. It seems that uh iq is so gameable like you can raise your iq 20 points by preparing for the test well people not 20 points but you can you can also raise a kid's iq by moving them from a a impoverished neighborhood to Mm -hmm. a upper middle class neighborhood they've done that study yeah what i thought the only the thing i thought was most interesting about it is that my my impression which could have been wrong from before was that we denied his result we just said this isn't true your research is bad. You're well, a racist. I think a lot of you're, people still do. You're, a lot of uh, people, a lot of, lot of that still going around. Well, I gave it a quick Google. I literally just found out that he was making the rounds again. So I gave it a quick Google. And it seems like the argument has changed to this may be true, but it doesn't prove that it's genetic, which is totally, it's just, yeah. Oh, I, I, I think that totally, is always, I think for, I think that's actually been the thing for a long time. That is that, yeah, these numbers, these numbers are not indicative of a, of a real world. There's, there's no real world conclusion that could be drawn from these given well, I thought, before, at least for, in my little circle of the world, the impression I got was Charles Murray's uh, results were wrong, was the conclusion mm-hmm. of the past. And it seemed to me like the dialogue shifted to his results don't say anything about genetics. Yeah. Which, which, which I was like, oh, that seems like a more measured response to him, actually. And mm-hmm. I would have thought, if anything, it would have gone the opposite way, given the the climate of today. So that, that was my biggest surprise podcast or anything. I watched him on Coleman Hughes, but they, they didn't really say much. So I, I actually paid the $5 to get the whole thing on Coleman's. Oh, okay. I only watched it on YouTube and I didn't really have any interesting takeaways. Yeah. Well, the big, there's the disagreement that Coleman says, look, I'm, I, it might be wrong, but I'm not going to take issue with the research because i'm not a statistician and i don't I haven't deeply done the data i'm going to assume for the sake of this conversation that this is done in good faith and uh represents the accurately represents the truth you know that this mm-hmm. sample is uh, is useful i still contend from coleman's perspective that you are doing more harm by good than centering this conversation around race and IQ because of the downstream effects, because one, people aren't equipped to really understand the difference between mean, because the little kids are going to go into school and say, I heard on the news that you're not as smart as me. And that kid's going to go home and tell his parents and the parents are going to have a fit. And it's, it's just not a useful way to uh, slice up the world and to discuss it. And then Charles responds, well, we, the, the nation is being accused of being systemically racist. And I, my data, according to me, shows that that's not the case. That there are uh, expected outcome level changes that one would that one would expect. So, what am I to do? Like, we're we're mislabeling the problem here. So I have to do this, and then they they don't necessarily come to a conclusion. Um, I have an opinion on. Well, the one thing I'm surprised I'm honestly I'm surprised from Coleman from what I've seen before because if it if it is the case that on average a certain group is being uh, affected by something, nutrition or school or whatever, 
I agree. Who cares? Like you don't have to label it by race, but isn't it helpful to know that because then you can focus on improving nutrition and school systems and stuff like that. I come back to who cares of, of the skin color breakdown. Look, it just, do kids have bad nutrition? They get the kids that have well, this is what nutrition, I'm, this is what I'm saying. better nutrition. And I don't care if it's 80% black kids and 12% white kids and 8% like just if there's a problem with people in America, just help the people that have that problem. Sure. But I, <laughs> but I think if you, so let's say that's a certain neighborhood has a lower than average IQ. Mm-hmm. Well, I agree. Yeah, I don't, you don't have to know the racial demographic of that neighborhood, but it's damaging to say that's not true. All neighborhoods have the same IQ. So like this neighborhood and it's 90% white, it's 90% black, it's 90% Asian. Well, I don't care, but we should figure out why they have a lower than average IQ. Is it the school system doesn't have the funding it needs? Is it that the nutrition is bad? Is it that there's something? Mm -hmm. And then you can go basically like, help the kids in that neighborhood well i tend to think like i i tend to think all the breakdowns by race are missing the point uh and again you'd have to run the data but i suspect that you would find stronger correlations to economic yes i agree like just just help the kids particularly that are that uh do not have the support systems that allow them to flourish uh yeah you definitely don't want a policy that goes into a school and helps kids only of a certain race <laughs> even though all of the so, kids have so the same to me whether it's whether it's coming from the woke left saying hey we need to uh you know affirmative action this many kids into honors courses or into college or it's coming from charles murray saying hey this explains it and we don't need to do anything i'm like the, the the study of it by race from my in in my opinion uh makes for bad solutions because then you start doing what we did with this this Joe Biden recovery program, which is now you're giving money to restaurant owners based on their skin color. And we had a long discussion about this. And I know someone around here is a white guy who couldn't get any money. I know a guy who got a lot of money. He's an Asian guy. Uh, and I think he would tell you that he doesn't deserve it. He wouldn't tell you this, but he would say it privately. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> that he doesn't deserve it. He would never come on the podcast no, and say this. No, he has said it. He has said it. <laughs> yes. You'll never catch him saying it and on, in recording. That it's messed up and that... Uh, yeah, he got more than he deserves. He got a lot more than he deserves. Yeah. And uh, the that it, you would do it by... By race is just ridiculous. Yeah, you um, just do it by need. Not just by need. I think it's, you would want to do it by need and by behavior. Because like, look, there's there's people that will be in need forever and don't show uh, a capability of taking what is given and then returning on that investment by becoming a more productive member of society. So I think that some combination of, of need and ROI ROI is is what sure. you're looking for. But yeah, my only thing was it was, it's weird to me that some people want to not talk about IQ differences across high school kids in different neighborhoods. And just again, forget race, but it's like, why don't we figure out why this is happening? Well, that's, uh, I would actually, I agree with Coleman on this. Like, just don't, just don't run the analysis by race and don't do the other analysis by race. And like, I, I, I also tend to think sure, that what you're going to find, you're like, you know, cops are killing black people. Like cops are killing uh, poor men. You know, forget the fact that they're men even. <laughs> like, you can throw that one out. I think that there's a lot of uh, people come into these arguments with the three classes that they're most interested in. They're interested in men versus women. They're interested in typically black versus white. And then you mix in the other races that are also discussed. And they're interested in gay versus straight. And those are the three groups that they seem to think are most important. And I, I just pull my hair out going like, don't you think that economic class is, is uh, your, your income of your 
parents is is a really important one to include in in this. Um, so I tend to agree with Coleman on this that it's just not useful. But to your question of like, hey, wouldn't it be good to know why IQ differs amongst people? Hundred percent. Well, yeah, I think the big thing was uh, at one point people were just denying the results, and if the study's done poorly, then it's done poorly. But if there if there are neighborhoods where people testing lower and then have lower financial Mm -hmm. futures because of it. And IQ, if IQ is the thing, like Jordan Peterson says, that correlates the most with financial outcomes, then it seems like the natural conclusion would be, well, why don't we try to study how we can help raise the IQ of kids in areas that are depressed in terms of what you would expect the average IQ to be? Yeah, this is the other thing that we, I mean, I don't know how they treat it, but one of the thoughts that I had is like, okay, like let's, you know, this race is here, this race is here, this race is here. Like, why are we all, I don't think he is, but there seems to be an implicit understanding that this is the upper, like Ashkenazi Jews are maxed out. It's like, what if they could have an average IQ of 160 mm-hmm. if they got baby Mozart and, and better schooling and grew up in a community and ate broccoli three times a day? Like I, I am at the impression that the human lifespan and human intelligence are are nowhere near maximized given how we raise our selves and our kids and how we take care of ourselves. So it's like the relative falling of it in any particular year is uninteresting to me. I'm interested in potential while also recognizing that not everyone, like this seems to be a fair conclusion of the IQ studies, is, is capable of the same potential. Mm-hmm. But that you, could use, that you could move the human mean considerably such that it's, it's almost like why would we run this analysis now? Like let's push it up a lot. What was what was the average IQ 100 years ago? I'd be willing to bet if you gave them a standardized Stanford Binet or whatever IQ test, mm-hmm. it'd be a lot lower. And I expect it's going to be, hopefully, if things go well, a lot higher in another 100 years. So let's just, just move the whole thing up. Uh, well, I think what holds it back, as I'm reflecting on it, is I think what holds it back is potentially a fear that some of it is genetic. <clears throat> and people don't want that to be the case. So they don't want to run any tests where that could be the outcome. So then you, so then it's like, well, how do we study what the cause is if we can't, if we don't want to study what the cause is, you know what I'm saying? Like, cause I think that the thing that is helpful is to know what contributes to this and what variables are in our control and how can we improve those variables? Mm-hmm. But I think some people are just scared to run the test. I guess, and this is, uh, I know a lot of people on, particularly on the left, disagree with me, but the, one of the variables I'm just not interested in is by race. I'm not interested in running almost any of these things by race. I go, you know, the the uh, overly simplified example, which I understand that it doesn't have the same historical context. You could do eye color or hair color. Like, I'm just not interested in those cuts of, of the data. Uh, if there's people on the bottom... Find out if it's possible to help those people on the mm-hmm. bottom. If it disproportionately helps people of one race, I don't care. I don't like. We should be focusing our attention on high ROI, high need, and that is it. And it, there shouldn't be another confounding variable of skin color. Um, that's my that's my sense of it. So, I, I was I guess with Coleman on on that shakedown. Anything else you want to add? No, no, I, I just think it's, I mean, weirdly enough, it's, it's, I almost think the people that, and you're saying remove it completely, but I think the fear is that they, they'll go into these areas and they'll run a bunch of tests and then they'll find out it's genetic. And the people who have that fear 
basically have a racist fear almost. Whereas if you can't, if you went in and you said, I actually think this is almost all nurture, then you wouldn't be afraid to try to figure out what's causing depressed IQ averages. Mm -hmm. Cause you just go, oh, yeah, I know this is going to come down to nutrition and teaching and stuff like this. So let's just do it. Mm -hmm. So it's funny. Cause I almost feel like there's the, there's like a, well, it's tough. I mean, uh, man, I don't even know how one would study that. It's like, okay, we're going to take a group of kids that are like in super poor neighborhoods and don't have good mentors. And we're going to give them really good food. <laughs> like how does one even do that? And you know, Oh, what do you know? Like dropping out to be a drug dealer, because there's no other economic opportunity, despite the fact that you've had really good vegetables your whole life isn't enough. Like, I think it's, it's a tough test to run. Sure. Is it diet? For instance, it's tough to hold that constant compared to other variables. Um, and we kind of, it seems that we broadly know that it's like loving communities and families, opportunities that don't make you run afoul of the law, uh, a focus uh, culturally or intrinsically on, tests and studying <laughs> because if you don't care you're not going to do it mm -hmm. um yeah i imagine yeah having the time to focus on studying yeah because you don't have to work or worry about where you're going to eat or or all that kind of stuff um yeah it's like i wonder what would happen if you went to uh, uh i'm sure i guess these might exist yeah the poorest countries of whatever race of each race and then you know ran an iq test i think you'd find like oh my gosh the average is less <laughs> than than when you're really developed. So it just seems to, to increase the level of development around the world and in the U.S. would be the obvious policy solution. But maybe I'm oversimplifying things. I don't know. So that Charles Murray's back. It was also weird to see him. Like like I said, he was like Voldemort. I was like, this is a person. Strange. He's making the rounds. Yeah. Um, so what else did I have? Uh, we, we mentioned this, this is just a random thought and then I guess I'm done is that I think it was it you and I were talking about like mountain climbers or was it me and my brother that it's like a drug addiction, that it's a drug addiction, mm -hmm. that it's, uh, I think it's the word is endogenous, which just means internal to your body. So like if you're injecting heroin, you're taking opiates and you're putting it into your body. If it was a while ago that I watched it, but there's these, these, Mountain climbers and the squirrel suit flyers mm -hmm. who have a death rate that is ungodly. It's like it puts drug addicts to shame. And you listen to things they say. Their family's pleading them not to go. Their friend just died. They just got back from a trip, but already they're thinking of the next one. And the way they describe their experience is exactly the way a, a drug user describes their hook. But as a society, we glorify the squirrel suits and not totally glorified but it's it's not treated like oh you're sick you have a problem you're going to leave your family fatherless uh, because you are addicted to adrenaline and you need ever increasing it's the same thing you need more and more intense things to get to do it so you yeah, can't just squirrel suit you have to fly close to the wall when you squirrel suit. well you can't just skydive because that's boring you yeah. need to squirrel suit yeah and now you got to do a trick when you squirrel suit and you got to like you got to take the hardest route when you do it and you just need ever increasing amounts until you overdose on adrenaline and it makes you do something stupid or, or just you have something goes wrong and, and you, you die. Um, and yeah, it just seems like I, th I think that society is starting to understand addiction a little bit mm -hmm. better, but it is not, doesn't seem to have categorized those things. I think where they belong, which is an endogenous drug addiction that has all, has all the same effects and, uh, is not good for you. So, Yep. Anything else? 
YouTube questions? Let's do YouTube. Cool. We've only got two this week. All so right. People should wow. start asking questions. Uh, and the first one isn't even really a question. I should preface this by saying that it was left by a guy who does not claim to be any kind of doctor, but his profile picture had a guy in a lab coat. <laughs> so I was like, oh, maybe, he, maybe, I don't know. But um, it was in response to the vaccine discussion last week. So they said, uh, first, I want to say I respect each individual's decision to receive the vaccine or not based on their own risk benefit analysis, which accounts for their respective regions, COVID prevalence and vaccination rates. I'm also sympathetic to the feeling that public health guidelines may feel overly aggressive and at times inconsistent. Secondly, the argument, as I understand it, for being vaccinated as opposed to relying on natural immunity is as follows. The Pfizer and soon after the Moderna mRNA vaccine phase three study cohort, which ended recruitment in November 2020, have demonstrated similar vaccine efficacy to date, which is seven months later, uh, though updates will continue to be published periodically. Furthermore, mRNA vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna may also or have also demonstrated induction of robust immunity against the, the virus variants that are still spreading in different parts of the world. See the Delta variant in India, especially. In contrast, there have been a number of reports demonstrating COVID reinfection following a natural infection in less than a seven-month post-infection window, something I predict will or would increase as variants are selected for and increase in prevalence as time goes on. Finally, even if natural infection confers partial immunity, there's a theoretical risk that you could be asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic and continue to spread it, especially to older, sicker, or immunocompromised persons, something I would predict would happen less in vaccinated people. Yeah, so uh, I the the question of which one confers more long lasting robust. It very well may be the vaccine. I did hear errantly Brett Weinstein say on the Lex Friedman podcast, and I, I, this is if, if we speak to him again soon, this is a question that I have for him that the way that the vaccines are made. I mean, here's what he a couple buzzwords that he said. I'm not. I, I don't pretend to understand this. That because. The vaccines focus on a single spike protein. They have a more narrow window against the things that they cover as compared to natural immunity, which is, um, I'm not saying true, but is counter to what I'm hearing. And, and I just have to recognize that I'm totally in the dark with this. And the question that I'm asking myself with this vaccine stuff is not really about, it's, it's much more about who do I trust when I come down to it? Because I go, I am so ignorant. And so is everyone else. Everyone who's pretending not to be ignorant because they listen to the news closely doesn't understand any of this stuff. Like at the at best, now maybe you're a scientist and you've read the papers and you can exempt yourself from what I'm saying if that is the case. But the people that I've interacted with, I don't know anything about this commenter, but in my own life, at best are repeating the words that they've heard said on the news authoritatively. Um, and okay, that is may well be true if you trust the news. And I find myself going, who do I trust Brett Weinstein who seems to, you know, errantly think the opposite of this or this commenter who seems, you know, he knows that it ended in November, 2020. And I, and I go, the decisions that I'm making about this are based on such silly stuff because like he included the date and I go, Oh, this guy knows shit, <laughs> you know? And Brett, and, and I go, why do I trust Brett Weinstein? I go, well, I've watched him for a while and he seems to have gotten two or three predictions pretty correct so far. And, and I, uh, like him, and he seems to to be a good faith actor who uh, knows about biology. But I've not read any of his papers. I don't know if he's a good biologist, evolutionary biologist. Um, Is that his background? Yeah. He said the word spike protein, so I go, you know, and 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 I go, what am I doing? <laughs> I don't understand. Maybe they're both right, or maybe they're both wrong. 
I inter- the the question of do of vaccines as I was thinking about it is much more a question of who to, for ninety nine point nine 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 percent of people is of who do you trust and why, and how do you make decisions about things that are so far over your head, such muddy waters, uh, and yeah, I, I this is totally plausible, and so is what Brett, Brett says, which is completely opposite to what this says, and I go, what am I to do? with this and some people go obviously you listen to the cdc but my perspective is i don't trust the cdc or the government i don't think they get everything wrong but uh i guess i could i've I've done this on the last last podcast but if you if it's worth it i'll sit down and just all the times that i haven't trusted my government i said this to my dad he's like yeah i get it i grew up during vietnam when they told us we had to go there we weren't in cambodia with like like they uh i'm not saying that i have a better alternative but I don't have a deep faith in in these institutions to tell me what's good for me. Um, nor do I consider them to be purely evil, like trying to implant tracker chips into people for to, to download Windows or something. No, like no. That. If any, the government, <laughs> if anything, definitely wants the vaccinated people to live because <laughs> those are the people that they're the people that listen. So if the government could wipe out one part of the population, it definitely wouldn't be the vaccinated part. So I don't think it's like a malicious conspiracy to take the sheeple out. They love they love people that follow the advice of the CDC. Yeah. So says Master Bill. Um but yeah, so I I I hear you and I don't know what to do with the and I'm trying to be intellectually honest with the fact that the reason that I would believe you is because you said November 2020. And the reason that I would believe Brett is because he said spike proteins. And the reason that I don't believe the CDC is because a long list of, of things that I suppose I could catalog. Um, and it's again, it's not to say that I think that they're wrong about masks or anything like that. Like, I, I, I wear masks not because the CDC says to, but because my entire life I've had an understanding that may or may not be true that viruses can be, can, are airborne oftentimes and are, uh, they spread in the winter because you're inside. And maybe that's all a lie and this is all simulation. So it's, to me, this is just a, a very tough question of epistemology and i understand people that fully believe what they hear from the cdc that are going shut up stop thinking and do it because you're killing people and i go okay that's is that then then i uh, now i'm just arguing with uh, phantom versions of these people so i don't think it's worth it but well what would you say to that what i would say to that is that my biggest concern with that uh, this catastrophizing is is it seems to lack context, as if there was never an airborne communicable virus that mutated and killed people, as if we haven't been living with the flu and, to you know, uh, pneumonia and other respiratory diseases that kill the infirm all the time, and that that this one seems to be a virus that is quantitatively different, but I don't know that it's qualitatively different from what has been existing for 100 years and i would say something that might be like i guess it's just quantity is just a quality but like smallpox which wiped out i think 95 or 90 percent of the native population in america i think that's that's like oh man this uh, i'll take the risk of the vaccine because this kills 90 percent of people um and covid is in this it's in a different spot obviously than that more dangerous than the flu it seems less dangerous than smallpox closer to the flu by a long shot um so, yeah, and and then I go, you know, and then even <laughs> who's to know? I was I was on Twitter. Somebody who was, um, 
I was just, this was just someone who was on the critical role cast because I was looking up the critical role cast members. And this is, she's uh, a new member on the thing and she's playing and she says, hey, I'm on the plane. I'm trying to keep this on. But it's because I got the vaccine, but I actually have two friends who got the vaccine and still got reinfected. And it's like, look, I don't know if that's true, but then you, you just hear things like that. Wait a second, you're still susceptible? And it's like reports have come of people who have natural immunity. Well, there's a report of someone who had a vaccine immunity. Like, who wins, my reports or your reports? How many numbers are, not how many numbers, what is the size of each of these things? I lack the context to make a truly scientific decision and can only go based on whom I trust well, in this scenario. Also, 100% not saying that this is what that person did, but going back to our earlier comment from the podcast, you could also imagine someone who just thinks it's really, really important that everyone get vaccinated and keep wearing their masks. And so they come up with a story where their friend was vaccinated, but still got it because it lets them spread the message. I don't know if that's true. So it might might not be true. And I'm actually, just to be clear, I'm not saying this person is doing that. I'm just saying I am sure there are people making up stories on both sides to spread their... Mm -hmm what they think is best belief. Someone is spreading this story about someone getting really sick from the vaccine and it's not true. Someone's spreading a story about someone getting reinfected and dying and it's not true. People, uh, this has become so important to people that uh, I think they will lie to try to get the best action in their mind Mm -hmm. to happen. Yeah. And we do, I mean, so I, the first person that I know is really sick who I'll just give him a shout out because I'm pulling for him, Lucho of our Spanish channel. Uh, has been very sick with COVID in Argentina for a while. And so I hope, you know, there's nothing I can do on this channel. But I know someone who is adamant that their cousin was hospitalized with being very sick after getting the vaccine. Yeah. And I haven't said it because I don't, it might not be true. Yeah. It might be unrelated. Maybe they're hospitalized for something that had nothing to do with the vaccine. Like, And I, and I don't think that the vaccine is uh, that dangerous. Mm-hmm. But it's just, yeah, in terms of anecdotes, this is this is the this is the danger of what you believe is just based on what you see. Same it goes back to the the protests, the BLM protests. Were they mm-hmm. mostly peaceful or were they violent? Where were you standing when they happened? Like yeah. you'll believe very strongly yeah. one or the other, just depending on where you stood. And you'll yeah. believe things about COVID based on the people you know. And if you know sixty people that got sick and not a single person got anything worse than a three-day cold, you're going to feel very strongly that it's not dangerous. And if you have a loved one that died, you're going to feel very strongly that it's extremely dangerous. Yeah. So it's, uh, we, we, are, we struggle with context in, in the realm of big numbers. I'm just thinking if, you, if you're out there and you're listening, you think that I'm dead wrong and I'm, you find me stupidly obstinate and blind and killing people. Like I, what I can say is I want to do, like we donate a lot of money. I, you know, I want to help people. Like I want to uh, sacrifice things that are valuable to me, like money, in order to help people. I also care about my health. I don't want to get sick again with the flu or anything. Like, I I, I care about these things. I'm not a bad actor. Um, and so if you think that I have a bad take, I guess perhaps a deeper view of this is, like, what has happened that I have such limited faith in the institutions that you trust? And, you know, that, that seems to be the difference in the worldview is I – don't watch the news because I think that it is poison. And I've talked about that at length. I won't rehash it here. And I have very limited faith in claims made about this by the CDC for a variety of reasons, which we could go in. But like, 
I'm pull, I, I really am pulling in the same direction. Like I want people to be happy, healthy, and well as, and I want to be happy, healthy, and well. Um, and it's, it sucks that we have, have institutions that I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty thoughtful guy. Like don't inspire any trust <laughs> in, in me. That is a bummer. And there's uh yeah, that's just, that's, that's where I sit right now. I'm open to having them change, but it really is going to take, unfortunately, like it's going to take someone that I trust. Um, and that's why I do listen perhaps too closely to like, you know, these, they're not perfect, but like the Brett Weinsteins, these, he's, he's built up oh, as I've watched him a deeper degree of credibility than the CDC in my mind. Well, you don't trust him because he's, because of his education. No, you I, trust him because he's made predictions in the past that came true. Trust him because of what I intuit about his character based on the stories that I've been familiar with about Evergreen and all that kind of stuff about, I trust him because of the reserved way in which he speaks, the very careful carving out of like what we know, what we don't know, what we suspect probabilities like that to me speaks um, like a much more honest reflection of an attempt to describe reality then we know this doesn't, this does like all these vaccines. And then, you know, the banning of the conversation about ivermectin on YouTube, I have to say is like disturbing to, to me. The fact that they took down Senate testimony of this doctor, like he was good enough to go sit in front of the Senate, <laughs> but not good enough to be heard. On I don't YouTube. know that you've mentioned this on the podcast. Uh, well, sorry, this happened all this week. And I just, there was this, I don't want to rehash it because Brett has been talking about it, but there was this Dr. Pierre Corey who was on the Brett Weinstein podcast and I won't, uh, rehash everything he said, but essentially he thinks that there's a potential for ivermectin to be a good preventative and treatment. And ivermectin is a drug that's been out there for a while. It's cheap. There's not a lot of money, but to be made in it. Sorry, um, you did talk about that part. I don't think you talked about the Senate hearing. And they're getting taken out. I YouTube. watched this guy months ago to mention ivermectin. I watched the video and they took down the video on YouTube because it was too dangerous. And it's just like, I don't trust people who think that I can't get data, can't have information and make decisions for myself. So like, I, t I don't trust YouTube. I don't trust uh, these, the uh, collapsed, shortened uh, perspective on things. I don't trust uh, a discussion of the data without really... Uh, talking about groups that are that are most at risk, you know, like it, the the blanket solutions to a to a complex and nuanced problem, while I understand is perhaps necessary for them to communicate with the masses, alienates me. And then when I listen to someone for two hours like Brett, I go, oh, this guy is like trying his best to understand the world, and so I I take him more at a higher degree of credibility for me. Do you think that YouTube should keep the testimony up. I actually itself. won't go that far. Cause like, I, I am not saying that it's, I think it's dumb what they're doing, but I don't think it's morally wrong. I get what they're trying to do, which is like, I think here's the thing. Once, once you start censoring the world, you presume that you know the truth. You know, you presume that your team of crack scientists at YouTube has it, that the CDC can't be wrong, that the who can't be wrong, that the bottom of the food pyramid has to be white starches. You know, like, like the government has never gotten anything wrong about public health before. Uh, and that's, ridiculous like that that just shows that you don't understand the value but maybe that's not what they think maybe they just think look it's more likely that they're going to be right than whatever the conclusion of the masses is watching the most persuasive speaker on youtube because you can also imagine a time where free speech was say allowed in um germany in the 30s and like maybe it would have been really nice if someone just went and said no you can't talk adolf like you're done you're we're, we've had enough of that 
Um, so I get it. There's there's uh, certainly a lot of short-term, medium-term value to choking off free speech if you can pick the winners and losers and good people and bad people correctly. So I don't deny that. But uh, And they might not be doing the wrong thing, but it's it's a it's a difficult topic. I don't know that I would be as active in censorship as they are. I, I wouldn't. I, I would. It's an optimistic view that I would bet on the masses and then fingers crossed. <laughs> I'd be like, please, dear God, figure this one out yourselves. Except in extreme scenarios where like somebody's like, hey, I figured out how to build a nuclear bomb with stuff that you have in your refrigerator. <laughs> like, come along. It takes six minutes that I would take that off. I wouldn't allow. Um, so there, there's even a level of which I'm not a free mm-hmm. speech absolutist. Yeah, it's also interesting. And I don't think. I haven't thought about what I would do if I ran YouTube, but you, you could uh, imagine a video that says that 5G causes COVID, 10 million people watch it. Most of them are not convinced. A couple towers Five of them are extremely convinced mm-hmm. and they bomb 5G towers. Yeah. You go, okay, well, was this worth having up so that people could mostly just agree it's nonsense, but someone could mm-hmm. bomb a bunch of 5G towers and it's like, Probably you would prefer that that didn't happen. So they, it's a uh, talk about this on Lex Friedman. Brett, 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 I think correctly points out. He's like, look, that's going to happen. But all of the progress is on the fringes. All of the progress is, is outside of the established. Oh, yeah. I'm just saying it's not a no brainer. It's not costless. That's mm-hmm. all I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Like that keeping everything up. It, it doesn't come without expense. Yes. Yeah. No, it, I, what he says, I think you're right. There's a cost to free speech, and it is steep. He just estimates that the cost to limiting speech is even higher. Like these are these are two well, suboptimal, not suboptimal. Uh, these are two costly decisions. And I think that makes sense if you think you don't know everything. Mm-hmm. But if you think you can, with 100% accuracy, cut the bad apples and keep the good ones uncensored, then you think it's if You and your costless. technocrat friends know what's true, yeah. and it's just a bunch of then stupid th- people out there that need to get on board, then we should take down all the videos about 5G and ivermectin and all the stuff that definitely doesn't work. Right, because you're 100% know, certain. We're 100%, and people are just going to make bad decisions. And that's the hubris that they're demonstrating. Or or they just have a different calculation on the costs, and they go, yes, you know, we don't think we're right, but we think we're more likely to be right, and we think the cost, it's it's cost-benefit thing. So, yeah, it's not easy on either side. I, I don't, I can get on YouTube for being censorious at times, but I also recognize it's a really, really difficult decision that they're making, and it's not an obvious right answer. But uh, it does alienate me. When you, start, when you start telling people they can't talk, I go, okay. You might have gotten a lot of people, but you've lost me. <laughs> that math might be totally. That math, that might, math be cool might be great with that. With that. They, they, they cool might just go, that. okay, yeah, this one guy's, you know, convinced that Brett Weinstein is, yeah. is a genius. But yeah. we'll just shut it. We'll just uh, take that video off, and he'll be one of a hundred thousand people that saw it, and three hundred million other people will be watching the news and hearing their neighbors, and you know, that'd yeah, be good. they might think alienating you is totally worth a it. A price that they're happy to pay. I wouldn't fault them for thinking that <laughs> I'm like you're not wrong yeah so yeah that's that's where i sit cool and then the last one is i recently had a friendly argument with a christian guy where i was trying to represent determinism and he was arguing against it i lost that argument as he presented something that i had never heard before even though it seems that it comes as usual from ancient greeks mm-hmm. i wanted to hear <laughs> that's funny all, all of the all of these arguments were had 2500 years ago they've all been hashed out but go ahead um, so the argument is that if determinism or the, so the argument is that determinism if true is unprovable in any logical way 
The argument is that logical and uh, logic reasoning require at the very least the ability to look uh, at an argument from the outside or an independent look, sort of a perspective that is out of a system. And these are impossible in determinism because you can't be out of the system. Uh, the, determinist, the deterministic universe includes everything and everyone. In determinism, all our opinions and thoughts are predetermined. Therefore, if there are, say, two options, A and B, of an opinion that one can hold, the opinion that one holds is solely based on what is predetermined. It can be either A or B independently of logic. There is no space for an independent look to decide if an opinion is logical or not because the decision is already determined. This means that if, determ if determinism is true, all of our proofs or arguments are predetermined with their conclusions, and there can't be any independent investigation to find out the truth. Um, the results are determined, what, whatever they are, independent from what is true. I believe that this isn't an argument that determinism is not true, but it is just that if it is true, we can't logically prove it because it seems that it is mutually exclusive with the presuppositions made about the world by the concept of logic. This means that... To, or, this means that to say that one believes in determinism and to say that it is a logical argument is self-contradictory. I hope I managed to deliver the mm -hmm. idea of the argument well, and I can't wait to hear your response to that. Thank you for all your work. So I don't know that I quite grasped it. Did you? Uh, I mean, I think the crux of it is determinism. If, starts if with determinism the is true. Determinism starts with the Big Bang mm -hmm. and therefore encompasses everything. Every person and atom in the universe. Mm -hmm. This person's argument is that you can't make a logical observation about something unless you're outside of it and since nothing is outside of determinism why do i have to be outside of something in order to make a logical observation i feel like that's just, a that snuck, was just a yeah that was yeah. i feel that that seems to be to be a snuck premise that one must sit outside of something to make a logical but i mean even let's grant that um it can't be logically proven i guess maybe perhaps like yes in a like but in a deterministic universe these are the words that would be coming out of my mouth. These are the thoughts that I would be having. There's no other way it could be. I have nowhere to judge it from well, outside of. But isn't, I'm just isn't, this true of, isn't this true of free will too? I'm unclear on how free will is different from this. Like if I'm a person with free will, how can I judge my own free will? Because I'm not outside of myself. Well, I'm not also, outside of my own free will. So isn't it just like, yeah, in either case, when you're talking about your own consciousness, you can't be outside of your own consciousness? I guess, so I'm a bad philosophy major, but I also wonder if this makes me like, it's kind of a good one because when philosophy arguments get uh, like this and, and you like really easily lose the thread, I go like, have you pulled some shenanigans on me? Like, where did this thought come from? It, if, I, if I inspect it, it appears to have come from a preceding thought and it could, was I free to think anything? Like Sam Harris has a good exercise that you could just go through where he asks you to think of a city. And then he asks you, how did you come to that? Well, we know that it's not infinitely free because you can't name cities you've not heard of. Okay, so it's constrained to cities that you've heard of. But what did it? Well, you probably had something like, okay, I'm going to think of, and then one popped into your head. Did you choose it to pop into your head? Maybe three popped into your head, and then you picked one. Well, why did you pick it? You thought, well, Sam would think that I would say Paris, so then I have to pick Egypt. Or And, and he, he just runs you through, at, at what stage of this does free will occur? Um, so I, I don't fully grasp the, you know, you need to be logically seated outside of a proposition in order to weigh in on it. I don't know that that's true or not true. And I, but, um, I feel like there's just other stronger routes to take that. I, I don't know that I would even necessarily engage in this one. And I actually think this is very common <laughs> among, uh, 
like 37 step proofs are very common in when you're arguing with a religious person because they've read like Anselm or something and they're like there, there is an idea of a perfect God and there, if, if an idea exists and they'll just like they just pull shenanigans in the 37 steps you can go to YouTube to watch people well what you're saying is if there's four steps it's easy to figure out where the leap is but if you make 37 steps there's and there's a logical leap in the 27th one it just makes it if it's you a have little to bit more prove God by going there is an idea in order to be it's like this isn't what a Christian God is <laughs> Like, Christian God is very, you know, Christian God invented the world, inspired a book, mm-hmm. raised a son from the dead. Like, let's talk about this kind of stuff. If you find yourself in the realm of uh, Anselm's proof and Thomas Aquinas stuff, I often think that unless it's very cr- clear and simple, that one, there's a YouTube video that addresses the complexity of it by rationality rules or whatever, and he breaks it down into a much more comprehensible thing that 10 minutes later you still struggle to address because... You know, there's, uh, he's, he's had, this guy, Rationality Rules, has had a back and forth with a Christian apologist who um, talks about the infinite timekeeper. Okay, there's, imagine an infinite timekeeper, and there's infinite segments, and each segment is, it's like, why are we doing this? <laughs> You're making very specific claims about a god, um, and I feel that that same uh, distraction from, like, the core holes in religious argument and the core holes in the free will argument is intended to confuse uh, because it's, it can't simply be argued for or clearly be argued mm. for because it's a losing argument. Well, that's one thing I noticed, not that it has to, but this didn't advocate anything about free will. And I think, I do think a lot of the things put forward in that text, which I don't have in front of me, so I'm going off memory, I think could apply to quote unquote, logically proving free will, mm-hmm. which is almost to say this person's argument is that we can't know because of the way I've defined logic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just the, like, the logic. That, okay, so if the way you've defined logic means that we can't know. The human construction of logic precludes the way that the universe works independently of like our Sure, but if that's the case, then you haven't, you, the free will is no more likely because of this conversation. You're just saying that we can't make a final judgment because of the way you've defined logic having to be outside of the yeah. system. And maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not understanding correctly, but that was my impression from listening yeah. to this. I go, yeah, I just changed a couple words and, this is a disproof of free will instead of a disproof of determinism. Yeah, and I and I freely admit I'm not I'm not actually engaging with the content of this argument because I don't understand it. I don't. Well, correct, I don't, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that the, that was the main premise, right? Was you can't you can't know you can't make a logical observation of a system from within a, a system, system from within it. That was that was the crux of this. Or particularly, I think it's saying that determinism kind of like collapses on itself because you can't make a a logical proof of determinism if you're part of it if that makes sense if you're if it's predetermined right he's saying that basically why, he's saying why there's no it's why a, he's saying there's no logic without free will i think why because your logic is predetermined and his definition of logic is yeah, that but, it can't be but, but predetermined can't be, says who again this is this is one of the things that i actually so i remember going to my freshman year and oftentimes freshman questions in philosophy are the most insightful sometimes they're totally stupid but you sit down in logic and they tell you here's the rules and the thing cannot be A and non-A at the same time in the same way. And everybody goes, okay. And I'm going, why? It says fucking who? <laughs> like, okay, if you build a system where A, like, and it seems obvious, how could something be itself and not itself? But it says who? <laughs> like, these are just, this is, this is, you're starting from a ground that you have it just installed over thin air. Like, and then there's these logical axioms that they then build from and they come to all these wonderful conclusions and it helps you interact in the world and it's a good tool. But then we forget that it started 
with uh, kind of like Euclidean geometry, just like everything is flat. You know, it, it, it just starts with a statement of how it is. And you go, but why? And you go, isn't it obvious? It is. And and I think that logic is kind of in the same uh, the same thing, unless I'm unless I because I didn't go deep into logic. Um, those axioms just always kind of grinded my gears. And then you take a psychedelic and you see how things can be a and non a in the same time in the same way. And it's completely indescribable. And it's just like logic well, is, or just like quantum physics, right? Like something can be a wave and a particle at the same time. Yeah, I don't. And who knows? Or it could be a two different. It could be superimposed in two different places. Um, logic is it's it's very useful. It's a tool. It's kind of a word game. You know, it's it's a word game for carving up categories of words based on a predetermined set of rules that have been installed at the bottom and are don't reflect like re, the concreteness of reality. It's it's a uh, it's a game. It's it's a word game for manipulating categories that are imposed on the world that do not necessarily exist in the world. And this is kind of why I like Eastern. I still logic is great, really cool. Use it. Uh, Eastern philosophy is more interesting because it confronts. Uh, stuff that is not so equal, easily parsed into language, you know, and you point at the moon and then you do not look at the finger, you look at the moon and you've got these cones that are impossible to unravel with your logical speaking brain. So I've devolved, but... Well, no, I mean, it's also, I guess, it depends on perspective, but like this couch is simultaneously solid and not solid. Not in the same time in the same way. So it's solid. So this, this is, uh, it's solid, to Ben Altman, mm-hmm. but it is not solid to a neutrino. Right. Right. So it, it is, um, you're actually just describing different parts of the elephant in, in a way like, you're like, Oh, this is soft. You're grabbing the trunk and the tr- neutrino is grabbing a different part. So it, um, it still is even in that perspective, uh, singular unitary. And then, and then you just have these experiences on psychedelics that are beyond words because I don't think there's any sort of language way to get around the a non a thing because that kind of is what language does. And I'm, I'm out of my depth here. Um, but it still is just, that's just where they start. And it's like, okay, maybe you could start here, but I don't, why, why, like how come this gets to be your, your starting point without any sort of, you could also make you can make other observations about systems you're a part of. I could come up with the effect of gravity using myself instead of an apple. Mm-hmm. If I just jumped onto a mat and then measured how, how quickly I fell and the rate of acceleration, like I'm part of the system, but I could be a measurable part of the system. Yeah, so I, I don't. I'm know not. That. I'm not sure about that foundational, I guess, query. Yeah. So I guess what happens is you mentioned that you lost the argument. What I would say that happened is you just got confused or maybe this is how I feel like I don't follow this. Um, and I'm, and I kind of do, but I, I disagree with the, why can't I be in a system and make a logical claim? Cause I can't because logic says I can't Well, fuck logic. Like <laughs> the claims that I'm making about the way that the universe works are outside of any particular tool or system. It's, it's, from the experience of looking at how my thoughts occur to me and how I behave. So a little bit rant. I hope, hope that that was there anything else that we didn't address sort of. So I think I I had to read it like multiple times, but the way I kind of simplified it was to say that in a system where determinism is true, then everybody who holds the belief that determinism is true is has that belief because it was thrust upon them by determinism. Yes. Whereas 
in a system of free will, you're able to, I guess, suss out free will because you're able to have an objective perspective. Well, yeah, can't you just- I, I actually think your way of summarizing it is like, it, it shows what I think is being obfuscated in the construction of it, which is like, and in this one, you're able to have an objective perspective, which is free will is an objective perspective is it sits outside the system. I, yes, to the first part. Well, it's out, but it sounds like you're just saying the same thing. And again, now we're talking about Justin's paraphrasing of you, but it's like when in a world where predeterminism exists, you believe for the people that believe that, that the world is predetermined, they believe that because of predetermined things. Correct. In a world where free will exists, the people who believe in free will believe it because of free free will. will. That actually brings free will into more question because that means you're making a choice about the universe and not actually recognizing like the the necessity of determinism is kind of beautiful in the sense that it's like, look, if something makes sense to me, I can't unmake sense of it. Like I cannot speak about it. I cannot say about it. But like if it just stacks up in my brain and. Yeah, to me, it just sounds like you're just saying the same thing. You're just saying. In a predetermined world, the people that believe in predeterminism predetermined it. And in a free world, free will world, the people who believe in free will had free will to choose it. Okay, well, why is that? Well, I guess that's true. I think the stock premise is free will is better because it allows objectivity. And I don't know that that's the case. Also, like objectivity, I think in a, in a is, is one of those words where in philosophy, you have to be careful because objectivity doesn't mean more right. Uh, it's... I don't need to dive deeply into it, and I don't even know that I could these days. But a, a subject is um, it's it's something that you have a conscious experience of, and an object would be something that is uh, that a subject has a conscious experience that is outside of that particular consciousness. At least in regards to philosophy, the way that we use objectivity in conversation is to say true and more true. So it can sometimes be a bit of a weasel word in philosophical conversations where they use. Oh, maybe object. that's what's happening. Sometimes you can be like. You know, um, well, he's an objective observer because here's the system here and he exists as an object outside of it. It doesn't mean that he has a greater claim on what's happening. Oh, I think we just got, I think we just got to the point. I think that that's what the person was saying was it is because you're outside of the system, you can be objective to it. And then objective also happens to have another connotation, connotation, which means correct. Correct. Yeah. Um, And that's actually not philosophically like we, we really abuse the word objectivity in uh we talk about objective observers and all these kinds of things like like people don't have uh doesn't uh i don't want i'd have to think more about it and read up on it but objectivity is confusing and is is just one of those words that is not used as it often is in philosophical texts I'm definitely burning low on glucose. I feel myself getting dumber. As I, go, I need to eat breakfast. I'm like, t- I shouldn't be this slow. <laughs> Do we have any I think questions? that was the crux of it, though. Is he was just saying, you know, you can't, the definition of objective, you can't be objective if you're inside the system. You have to be outside of it. And also objective means true. So therefore, truer to be outside of the system. Let's give me an easy one. Now. I think we nailed it. Uh, maybe. That's the end, right? Now we're on to yep. Patreon. Yep. All right. We're going to hop on to Patreon. If you guys want to come, uh, it keeps the podcast going. We we need you guys, <laughs> so please consider hopping over to Patreon. We're going to do a bunch more questions over there now, and hopefully my brain will kick back in. I'll let your brain kick back in while I go to the bathroom. Sounds good. All right, see the rest of you guys on Patreon. Peace.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.